So I've got a couple of bits to talk to us about from uh, a different passage that we've been looking at over the last little while. We've just done a series in 1 Peter, uh, which Phil finished off for us last week, and we're going to do a summer uh, looking in Ezra. Uh, but uh, this is a week in the middle where we wanted to do something a little bit different. We've kind of got these uh, potted throughout the year. And so I wanted to uh, speak to us from a passage in Matthew 5. So if you wanted to start turning there, feel free. So the passage is the beginning of, uh, of a, a wider passage or, or a couple of chapters or a few chapters uh, that's referred to as the Sermon on the Mount. And uh, the Sermon on the Mount is probably one of the most famous teachings ever, uh, certainly the most t- famous teaching in the Bible, uh, that contains a number of very familiar sayings, uh, kind of throwaway comments often, I think, things that you would definitely recognise if you were to read through those three chapters as being said, uh, often in, not in the right context. Um, but it's very, very challenging, very challenging. And uh, we've just had the joy of uh, having a life group on this subject, which has been wonderful. Uh, really, really helpful time. And uh, I just want to, well, he's not in here anymore, but I say it anyway, but Phil, Phil's leading of life groups has been so wonderful. I think it, a lot of work goes into ensuring that we can uh, find ourselves in that time together. And so I'm so grateful to him for that as we come to the end of this term. It's been a wonderful term. I've really enjoyed it, uh, being able to get to know different people and, and, uh, and learn a bit more about the Sermon on the Mount together. It's been wonderful. So we're going to look at what I think is, well, I think is widely you know, the clearest block of teaching that Jesus gives, the clearest uh, area of Jesus speaking directly to his followers about to, how to do life well. And uh, we finished off actually last week on Wednesday, Ched's uh, led us in, a, in an excellent session looking at uh, Jesus talks right at the end of the Sermon on the Mount about how we are to have lives that are built well, like a, a house that is built on a rock, that when the rain comes, it doesn't fall over. Other houses fall over. Other lives fall over. But Jesus wants us to have a a strong house, a house that is built on firm foundation. He says that that foundation is about hearing his words and putting it into practice, being those people that that listen to the sermon that he shared and uh, putting that into practice. And so it's a wonderful way to finish the Sermon on the Mount, and it's very much in my mind as we uh, look at this. We want to be those who are on a firm foundation of him not knocked around by the rain and the winds that come. If you want a real big challenge, why don't you look at Matthew uh, 5 to 7 in the summer as a little challenge to you. Have a a flick through that. We found it wonderful. So uh, why don't you give it a go? So I'm going to start off with a question before we get into the passage. And uh, this morning I want to do something a little bit different. So there is going to be a a little bit of interaction with one another, uh, which is slightly different, but it seems appropriate this morning. Everything else is different, so we might as well do this. Uh, So the first thing I want to ask a question of you, and maybe you want to ask a few people around you, is what does a happy life look like? What does a happy life look like? How would you answer that question? What would you say is like, you know, I'm really winning in life now. I'm flourishing in life. Wonderful. Well, let's, uh, let's stop that. Too much chatter. A couple of people are sounding very happy at the idea of a happy life. That's good to know. Right, so we're going to look in uh, Matthew 5, the beginning part of Matthew 5, which I think Jesus answers this question for us wonderfully. Uh, so we're going to read from verse 1. Seeing the crowds, he went up on a mountain. This is Jesus we're talking about. And when he sat down, his disciples came to him. 
And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. It's Jesus' answer to the question that we've just asked ourselves. Eight or nine statements, depending on how you group together that last little bit, about what it means to be blessed in life. The translation for blessing is blessed. It's, what, it's exactly the same, happy. Those who should be celebrated in life are these people that Jesus is talking about. Like much of the rest of this sermon, this is quite difficult, isn't it? Quite a challenge to read. And so I want to spend a bit of time uh, just looking in this in a little bit more detail about how to read them. What is it that Jesus is saying in these verses? And I guess I want to do like a bit of an overview on this. You might want to dive into some of these in a bit more detail yourself, uh, but want to look at this uh, in a one-off as a bit of a wider subject. So Jesus is talking about the kingdom of God. He's talking about the kingdom of God. The rule of God has started and the reversals uh, come as a result. We live in a broken, damaged world, a world that is, is tainted by the effects of sin, uh, not how our maker intended them. And then Jesus has come and he's bringing a change to that and his kingdom is flying uh, in the kind of face of that. This is quite a key moment. Earlier in Matthew, Matthew 4 verse 17, just uh, a short while before, uh, we read that Jesus is, is kind of giving this very clear message. He says, repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. This is the message that Jesus is sharing. He's saying, repent, the, the kingdom of God has come. He's talking of himself, ultimately, we'll get there. But he said, the kingdom of God is here. And then he gathers his disciples to himself and explains how this looks. His kingdom looks very different. The Beatitudes are a vision of God's kingdom, his new community that we live in. You know, you've probably heard it referred to as like an upside-down kingdom. It's things that you might expect, it might look like this, but it actually looks like the opposite. It's different to the kingdom of the world. And there was an expectation of this. The moment that a triumphant saviour would bring change, the moment that his kingdom would be ushered in, you know, his original hearers would have had an expectation around this. They would have expected that maybe it meant that Roman rule was going to be broken. That they would no longer live under the slavery of another master. Or maybe they believed that this moment would come when, when God's kingdom is established, that, that Israel would be raised up as a nation again that's powerful and others uh, were beneath them. But no, that's not what Jesus is saying. Instead, there's a very different kingdom that Jesus is talking about. He is triumphant. We've sung about that this morning. His, his victory, didn't we? We sung that. It's all about his victory, but it looks different. 
And I think it's too not necessarily what we might consider the kingdom to look like. I don't know how many of you would have given some of those answers when you talked about what a happy life might look like. We can assume a number of things that we need in life, can't we? Where you think, do you know what? If I had this, then life would be okay. And, and it's very easier for us to kind of fall into the idea of like the beatitudes of the world, the things that the world would say. If you had this, then you're happy. If you had this, then this is a content life. This is something you can lean on. This is something that you can know peace in. Hopefully, we've seen, the first point really, we've seen that the Beatitudes, the kingdom of God, is in contrast to the world that we live in. It's not what you might expect. The world might say, blessed are the rich, the famous, the popular, the beautiful, the sporty. But a blessed life in Jesus, he said, blessed are the struggling, the grieving, the people nobody notices. This is a really clear announcement that Jesus is making that the kingdom has come. And this is what it looks like. You still with me? First point, the kingdom looks different. The kingdom looks different to how we might expect. Our own expectations in that will look very different. But ultimately, Jesus has called us to something much bigger. The second point I wanted to raise are this. That Jesus has called us uh, to be those who... Uh, look at these verses, I believe, not as instructions, but as things that describe us, things that are already true inside our life. So uh, let me give you an example. If we were to read the Beatitudes as a way of saying, do you know what? The, the, the way to be more happy is to be more sad. That would make no sense, would it? If I was to say this morning, the, the key to being more happy is to be more sad. Would you believe it? Makes no sense, does it? Jesus isn't necessarily saying that. But what he is saying is that this isn't like a prescription of the way to do life. This is a description of who we are in him. His kingdom has come. We read about this uh, all over the New Testament. Um, I, I was thinking earlier of the, the series that we did in Ephesians, where we, we looked quite explicitly, didn't we, about the fact that we are in Christ Paul talks about the fact that we're in Christ. He doesn't really describe us as Christians. He says we're in Christ. This idea that we are found in him. If you've put your trust and your hope in him, you're, you're in him. He says it something like 64, uh, sorry, 164 times across the New Testament. He says you're in Christ. That's the description of who you are. And we read also verses like in Ephesians 2 where it says that, that you're in him in heavenly places. That your life is, is like caught up with him and you're caught up in his kingdom as well. This is like your position now. And so I genuinely believe that when we read verses like this, it's difficult to kind of navigate what is it that Jesus is saying. But one of the things he is saying is that this is a description of you now. If you're in his kingdom, and if you are a believer and follower of him, you are, you're in him, then this is a description of you. Because it's the kingdom life that is growing and uh, is being worked out in your life as you seek to follow him. We're not of the world. We're of a different kingdom. And it's important that we calibrate our thinking around that. We calibrate the way in which we think, the way in which we do life around the Beatitudes that we've just read rather than the things that we might think lead us to happiness or, or, or might bring us security in this world. It's that kind of kingdom. Jesus 
is very clear he's speaking to believers. We, we, we read at the start of that passage that, that Jesus is talking to a crowd, yes, but the crowd has gathered when he's called his disciples to himself. So it's really clear that he's talking to believers, those who put their hope and trust in him. Yeah, there's a crowd listening, that's fine. But he's saying, no, friends, this is the life in which you live. This is the truth for you. This is the kingdom that is at work in your life. That's my second point. The third point, I think, is really helpful for us just to to take note, and hopefully you'll agree. None of these are astounding, I don't think. But the third point is this. It's not natural. It's not natural. Surely we can see that, can't we? None of these things are natural. There's some of the more obvious ones where you go, well, obviously grieving and you know, and being blessed. I don't even know how does that work. But actually, there are other things in there where you go, I'm not naturally pure in heart. Naturally pure in heart. You know, if I, I could try really hard and not worrying about the outside and being really concerned with what my heart is doing. The rest of the sermon, by the way, is, is all about that. It's about our heart motivation, the way in which we live out these things. Uh, but being pure in heart, it does not come naturally. And so the sermon, is, and particularly the Beatitudes, are really helpful because they point us towards our need for a saviour. They point us towards our need for somebody to come and empower us to live in this way. This is one of the beautiful things that I think we read in the Beatitudes, that all of these statements, these eight or nine statements, should cause us to, to throw ourselves on Jesus, to say, help me, help me to live this way. This is the, the, the Spirit's power working through us, his kingdom working in us uh, to change us in this way. We're empowered by his Holy Spirit. I get teased a little bit by the other elders because I bring this up a lot, but I'm going to say it again. I, I, one of my favourite uh, things about the New Testament is when Jesus says, look, I'm going, but I'm going to send you a helper. I'm going to send you one who's going to come alongside you, who's going to empower you to live a life that you are called to one who is going to just walk this life with you. You know, this is men and women who had a physical Jesus in front of them and he says, it's better that I go. It's better because I'm going to send one who's going to come much closer, one who's going to be with you. Friends, this is the beauty of the Beatitudes is that we can know this truth. To live a life like this, to to live some of these ridiculously difficult statements, to live what it means to, to, to have like the kingdom of God within us is empowered by him the King of kings himself, empowered through his spirit. It's not natural, but it's not uh, necessary for us to do it in our own strength. So hopefully you agree with those three statements. But this looks different. I want to explore a little bit more in, in some of these verses, though, about how that interplayed. How did Jesus look in light of this? He's the best example that we have for kingdom life. So how did the kingdom life look in uh, how Jesus lived? And we've got the Gospels for that, Matthew, Mark, Luke and John, in which we can uh, see stories of the way that Jesus spoke, the way that he interacted with people. And so I just want to spend a few moments doing that. And I have a bit of a challenge for us as well. It's going to involve speaking to some people. Um, But I, I want us to look at that in little groups. And so maybe we can put the verses up in a moment, look over uh, these things. We'll spend maybe five, six minutes looking at that. I'll do the first one with us. This is what I'm looking for. So the first beatitude is blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Where do we see Jesus uh, changing the way he lived in light of that beatitude? Well, we could go to stories like the woman at the well. 
the woman that, that was in the middle of the day when no one else was around, she was excluded, nobody else would go near her, and Jesus broke all social norms and went to this woman and spoke to her about the kingdom of God. We see that she was like a woman who was poor in spirit. She'd come to the end of herself. She had a messy life. And Jesus came and brought uh, the kingdom of God to her. We could talk about other examples, couldn't we? What about the woman who throws herself at Jesus' feet, smashes perfume uh, all over the floor? Jesus says, do you know what? I'm, f- I'm forgetting about my important host and this person who's invited me to come and uh, stay in their house. This guy's like, you know, this is so wasteful and you know, all these other things that are going on. If you read the different accounts of that story over the Gospels, Jesus says, no, but look. Look at what this woman's done. She's poor in spirit. She's come to the end of herself. Her life is messy. She needs a saviour, but look. And Jesus is kind of attracted to that type of stuff. Do you see that? That the poor in spirit are blessed. And Jesus is attracted to that type of person. Friends, I wonder if we can just spend a few moments, maybe in little groups together. Uh, this feels like a life group again. I should have maybe had my our life group in like tabards and they could come around and be like the professionals in the room or something. But no, no, nothing like that. Just, just little groups. I want us just to have a little think for a few moments. What do some of these other verses mean? How do we see that played out in the life of Jesus? How do we see Jesus focus on those who blessed are, those who grief? Blessed are the pure in heart. Blessed are the merciful. How does that play out? Is that okay? Give me a little nod if you're okay with that. Wonderful. Right. Find some friends. Have a little chat. Wonderful. Why don't we um, come back together? It's a conversation you can carry on. Found that helpful, found that challenging. Thought, actually, that's causing more problems than I realised. Then why don't you continue that conversation with people? It's fun to, to delve into this a little bit. This is not easy stuff. Uh, this, is, this is what Jesus said himself, though. So we, we're going to give some space to this and, and seek to understand how it shapes our lives. Hopefully you had something along the lines of, you know, the morning Jesus stands with the sad, doesn't he? He's attracted to those who are weeping, those who are grieving. You know, he's, he attends a number of funerals. He, he weeps himself. He finds those who are grieving. There's a number of stories we could look at there. The meek, those who humble themselves, those who don't think highly of themselves, those who Uh, know their need. The Bible says that he exalts the humble. He exalts the humble. The world might seek to tread on those who don't make a lot of noise, but he exalts the humble. Those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, they desire to do what God wants. They long for that. They long to see his saving grace at work. He satisfies them. He satisfies them as they seek after him. The merciful, those who, who seek to bring forgiveness, those who seek to forgive. Well, Jesus talked loads about that. Has a lot of quite difficult stuff to say about those who, who struggle to forgive, those who struggle to show mercy. The pure in heart. What they say, they do. You know, he looked at the Pharisees. Probably the, the biggest issue he had with any one group was with the Pharisees. And it wasn't that they were uh, necessarily religious. They were going through the practice of doing things. It was the way in which they... They lived it out, the way in which they were like, look at my life, aren't I brilliant? The pride in which they had there. You know, Jesus talks about the Pharisees at one point. He says, you're like whitewashed tombs. You're like, on the outside, you look really pretty, but inside, you stink of death. 
And Jesus said, no, no, actually, my kingdom is about those who would have a pure heart. Those who, what they say is what they do. That it's all about heart motivation. That they have that checked. Not like the Pharisees. Blessed are the peacemakers. Those who are seeking, uh, uh, kind of working against the conflict, like the boiling water of stuff that's around us. They're like those who throw cold water on conflict. Those who are seeking to bring peace. We see that Jesus ultimately brings peace for us before God. But I was just thinking about this. Often we, we sing about this at Christmas, don't we? About the peace that God brings. That Jesus is like the Prince of Peace. We were praying with some People earlier this week are going through a really difficult situation. I thought, I don't really know what words to say, but I'm going to pray the peace of God that surpasses all understanding. Friends, that's what it means to be a peacemaker, isn't it? Saying, look, there's all these other things going on. There's lots of stuff that we could get ourselves involved in. There's lots of difficulty in this world, but we want to be those who bring peace. We're called to be peacemakers. And then we're persecuted for righteousness. We've talked about this already, I think, in the... One Peter series where we talked about the fact that uh, Jesus calls us to carry our cross and die, to follow him in that way. Ultimately, Jesus is the example of that, isn't it? Jesus carried a cross, died and inherited the kingdom. And he's now saying that, friends, you know, you're going to be persecuted for righteousness, but you're going to inherit a kingdom. You need to follow me. Follow me in that. And uh, what I found really interesting about this bit is I, I think I talked about this when I talked to you in One Peter, but... Um, Jesus kind of opens up persecution. I think it's very easy to think persecution is like, you know, this thing where uh, people, are, you know, are much worse off than us. We can speak relatively freely in this country and not face much opposition. And yet, um, you know, violent opposition, let's say. Um, and I've often struggled with the whole idea of persecution, but I think specifically here, Jesus opens this up. Those who utter evil things about you. You know, they're still valid. You know, if you're worried about that, that's still a valid thing. And Jesus kind of opens that up. That's persecution. Sometimes I think we're a bit nervous about saying, well, it's not like that, so it's not that bad. But no, Jesus is saying, blessed are you when people talk like that about you because that's persecution for righteousness' sake if you're persecuted for him. So we should rejoice in living those ways. We should be celebrated. The happy are those. The Beatitudes, though, I think as we come in towards a finish, only make sense in light of Jesus. The Beatitudes only make sense in light of him and his rescue. It's because he has come. It's because he is the one who's announced the kingdom of God is at hand. It's only because of what he has done through his death and resurrection on the cross that the Beatitudes make sense. Isaiah 61, this is a a passage of scripture that Jesus himself reads in the synagogue. He, uh, Luke describes this moment um, where uh, Jesus opens up the scroll and reads uh, a section of the Old Testament and basically says, this is fulfilled in your presence. This is me. I have come. And this is what he reads. And you can see some of the links here with the Beatitudes. He says this, Isaiah 61. I'll only read uh, four or so verses. The spirit of the Lord is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favour and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn, to grant those who mourn in Zion, to give them a beautiful headdress instead of ashes, the garment of praise instead of a faint spirit, that they may be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that they may be glorified." 
The Beatitudes make sense when we look in light of Jesus. They make much more sense in him. When we see that it's Jesus who said, this is me, I've come. This is a new kingdom. And if you're in him, you have that kingdom life in you. It's only true because of his rescue. But there's just one final thing that I think is important that we recognise from the Beatitudes, and that is that we live in tension. We live in a, a place of tension, of all that Jesus has won for us and a promise of what is to come. You've probably heard it expressed before, like the now and not yet of the kingdom of God. Like some of these things we see now so clearly, and yet there is more to come. It's like the now and not yet. And we talked about that a little bit at the beginning, didn't we, where we said that you know, people were expecting a certain thing. When Jesus said, the kingdom is coming, the kingdom of God is here. They were expecting, well, it's all going to come in one big dollop, and everything's going to change. But instead, that is not what's happened. Everything has changed, but everything will change again. There's like a promise now and a promise to come. That's what the kingdom does. The kingdom says that no, God has come. God, God has come in the person of Jesus. There is a rescue. There is, there is a saviour. And he has started to turn everything on its head. And one day he will return and turn everything on its head altogether. And we will be with him in eternity. That's what we celebrate in bread and wine. That's what we're going to do in a few moments. But it's important to see kind of this expectation that everything was going to change in one go uh, isn't, isn't the right way to look at these verses. That there's a bit of a tension in this. There's a tension in the way that we experience. That we're going, we, we experience these statements true now, but we're going to have a whole new, greater experience of them to come. They are fulfilled now, but there is also future promise. On both levels, I think this can be a bit of a challenge. If we're thinking, you know, do I see the evidence of this in my life now? Do I see what God's doing now in these moments? Well, if we're looking for that, if we're looking for the tangible evidence of that, that can sometimes lead us to doubt, lead us to struggle. But we know that there is a promise coming. Equally, if we're just about the promise coming, then we miss the things that God is doing in our lives now. We miss the things that he is doing in and through us uh, through different seasons in which we live. And we're just kind of trying to look for that moment where we go, oh yeah, but maybe it's this and it's the ultimate promise. There's both. There's both. And that's important to remember when we consider the kingdom of God. Joel Virgo, I listened to him preach on this subject. It was really helpful. Talking about the greater things to come, but also knowing God now. Uh, he gave this example, which I thought was brilliant. He said, he will walk with the grieving now. Some of you maybe experienced that. He will walk with the grieving. Those who are struggling with different experiences. He does and he will bring comfort now. But the Bible also says in the end, his own finger will wipe away our tears. His own finger will wipe away our tears. Friends, that's what it means. Kingdom life means that. You will know comfort now because he has come. But one day you will know ultimate comfort because he wipes away every tear. The same is true for all of these statements that we've read, these eight or nine statements. The Beatitudes help us to make sense of that. When things go wrong, when things don't look the way I think they should do, when I don't really feel like this is much of a blessed life, the Beatitudes help us to make sense that I live in the promise of ultimate blessing. It helps us to bring strength to the house. Like I talked about at the beginning, it helps us to strengthen that house when the rain comes. To know that Jesus has spoken these things so clearly. I can be secure in what he said because I know that I have 
This is a truth now and a truth to come. I'm blessed because he was cursed. I'm able to know these truths because of his rescue. If we read the Beatitudes as we must try harder, then I think we've completely missed the point. The Beatitudes should be read as he has come and this is what he's won for us. A kingdom that looks different, really different. But it's a wonderful kingdom that he has invited us into. One that uh, has secured us for eternity. God is in control. He's still working in the midst of the different circumstances. important to know that. And so I kind of, I think it'd be appropriate maybe just to finish on communion. Maybe the band can come back up and, and we can play in the background. But essentially we do this with communion. The communion is a moment that Jesus invites us to share together when we gather in the different contexts to celebrate just this thing. That he, uh, he wants us to remember the fact that he died on the cross, that his body was broken, his blood was shed for us. And if you're a believer of him, he invites you to take that in communion. But he also invites us to remember and to take this until he comes back one day and takes us to be back with himself. It's like a now and not yet thing with communion as much as anything else. And friends, just as we take communion and the band will start playing in a moment, but I just wanted to invite us to maybe consider these areas personally. What is it that maybe God can highlight for you from these eight or nine statements? Areas in life where you think, I just need to know more of his grace there, more of his kingdom there. Maybe I just need to recognise that that's what he's doing in my life. Maybe just allow him to bring to focus uh, some of those areas. And then uh, when you're ready, you can respond and take bread and wine and do it in that way. Say, God, I'm so grateful uh, that you have won this for me, that this is a reality for me now. And I'm so grateful for what's to come. I'm just going to finish by praying. And I want to pray the second part of these verses as we take communion together. The second part of these verses that... God has won for us, and then the band can uh, lead us on. Father, we thank you for these verses. We thank you that there is such explicit clarity that your kingdom looks different. It doesn't look as we would expect it, maybe in some cases how we would even like it to look. But you've shown us what a blessed life looks like. We can be happy, we can be joy-filled, we can be uh, celebrating life, knowing that you have done wonderful things in us, that your kingdom has come. Your kingdom has come now. There's a reality to that now. And I pray, Father, for that reality to be made known in people's lives now, where they uh, have areas that are maybe highlighted uh, from these verses. Father, I pray that you would just show yourself in them, I pray. But Father, I just want to thank you for the latter parts of these verses, the parts that are to come. Thank you that you say we will be comforted. Thank you that you say we will inherit the earth. There's nothing that's going to be held back from us. You promise that we will be satisfied, that we will lack nothing, that we will receive mercy, undeserved mercy. You promise that we will see God. You promise that we are called God's sons and daughters. You promise that ours is the kingdom of heaven. What a wonderful saviour you are. We celebrate you and give you all the praise to your name. Amen.